This evening we'll explore compassion, karuna, which is the second of the four sublime abidings. The first being metta, which we've been exploring and will continue to explore through our practice. The second being compassion, karuna. The third, uh, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy. And the fourth being equanimity, upekka. And beginning with some words from American author and photographer Eudora Welty. My continuing passion is to part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and blinds us to each other's presence, each other's wonder, each other's human plight. There's an image in uh, Tibetan Buddhism that represents the awakened energy of unconditional or boundless compassion. And it's an image of a, a bodhisattva or a bodhisattva in Sanskrit that's often depicted as having a thousand arms outstretched and a thousand eyes. And an eye painted in the palm of each hand that's reaching out. A thousand eyes to see all of the suffering in the world and a thousand arms reaching out to help. A number of years ago now, I attended a retreat with a Vietnamese monk and venerable teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. There were about 400 (coughs) adults at this retreat and there were also 30 children. And the children were off each day um, having their own retreat. Uh, But every morning they would come in and do a kind of show and tell uh, for all of the adults before we would begin our retreat day. And so every morning they would come in and stand in front of us and in various ways um, shared what they had been uh, doing and learning the previous day. One morning all 30 of the children came in came into the meditation tent where all of the 400 adults were sitting, and they stood in a long line facing the 400 adults, and then each a child uh, stretched out both their arms with their palms, wide, hands wide open, palms facing us like this. And the, in the palm of each child's hand was painted an eye. And then one little boy walked up on the platform where Thich Nhat Hanh was sitting and painted an eye in the palm of one of Thich Nhat Hanh's hands. And that was the, the whole presentation this, that, that, that morning. And it was uh, very, very touching and inspiring and really quite beautiful. So, compassion, karuna. What is it experientially? About 49 years ago or so, early one June morning, I heard the wake, waking stirrings of one of my newly born twin sons. And holding him that morning, 
with a very sweet tenderness between us as he lay in my arms open-eyed and uh, quite relaxed and quite contented. And my eyes were just searching his face and looking deeply into his eyes and his face with a kind of wonderment and a kind of curiosity. And then suddenly I, I felt my heart start to tremble, kind of quiver. And then the vibration permeated my chest and all through my heart center and then moving through my whole body and my mind. It was a feeling of connection, an intimacy with this little baby in my arms and really with life as a force, so to say, coming through him. And immediately interwoven with these moments was a very deep sense that this tiny being would experience many difficult things in his life. Difficult situations and many bodily painful experiences, mental painful experiences within himself. And a kind of wave of the breadth of the suffering in life literally quivered through me in the midst of those moments of uh, tremendous sweetness and beauty. And some tears came as I was holding him and looking at him and feeling all this. But not the aching tears of the sadness that comes with the feelings that we have of attachment. That morning the tears were really more like the juice of compassion that, yes, this is how it is. This is how it is for all of us and for him too. And that morning's experience has returned many, many times and in many different ways as both a teaching and as a practice for me within the enormous gratitude that living life immersed in the Dhamma brings. The Buddha described compassion as the trembling, the quivering of the heart in response to pain, in response to suffering. Our suffering or the suffering of another being. Compassion is really the heartbeat of the Buddha's teaching. And it's one of the two wings with which we fly free. The wing of wisdom one of the wings, the wing of wisdom, of, uh, of the deep understanding of the not-self nature of all things, and the wing of compassion, the heart's connection to beings, this connection that comes through a deep understanding of dukkha, the cycle of unsatisfactoriness that runs through most of our lives, knowing its cause, and then knowing the way of its end, or to its end. Because meditation practice has the power to clear away, to purify mental obscurations, the states of mind that constrict, that bind the heart, that bind the mind, 
Practice then really actually makes us more keenly aware and more sensitive to the suffering in the world. So how can we bring our deepening sensitivity, our new, so to say, awareness of dukkha into our practice? How can we bring it into this path of liberation? Our practice must be grounded in the non-judgmental acceptance of the heart of metta, that the heart of metta offers us. It's also grounded in concentration, mindfulness, and investigation, meaning clear and focused mindfulness and the discrimination of states, of body, of mind, and of heart connecting with whatever arises and seeing it clearly. A mind, a heart that's steeped in metta is what really is really what allows for the connection of mindfulness to take place in relationship to whatever arises. The blossoming of this important capacity along our way and this training is intimately involved with our growing capacity to compassionately meet and clearly see the difficult. To compassionately and wisely understand the suffering that shows up in this life. Compassion is a very tender, very open state. And at the same time, it's a place within us of tremendous strength. Tenderness, openness, and strength. The capacity to stay present in relationship to whatever's happening within our own body and mind, continuum as it it occurs, and in relationship to what's going on around us. And... Ideally, when compassion is really developed, not being overwhelmed by it. And so we gently, and gently is an important word here, and so we gently practice maintaining our awareness of suffering when this is what shows up in our field of experience. I think it's fair to say that most of us are pretty strongly conditioned to sweep discomfort, to sweep dis-ease under the rug, to hide it away in the metaphoric closet or attic. Or we hide ourself away by shutting off, maybe, by going to sleep, maybe, by distracting ourselves, or possibly through ignoring or trivializing whatever's going on, this difficult these difficult experiences, so that we don't see or feel the pain of others in this world, and so that we don't see and feel our own pain, our own suffering. Our conditioned habits of avoidance and distraction are actually all based in fear. The fear that if we really recognize, connect, and open to the pain, 
it'll touch in too deeply and cause us more discomfort and anguish or maybe unbearable pain. The aim of compassion, the aim of karuna, practice, is to move towards turning our developing capacity to, for heartful, unconditional acceptance, which is metta, and then gently turn the heart-mind specifically towards the difficult, towards suffering, in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others. And then with whatever degree of understanding we have available that's growing and developing, encourage to open to and move towards the alleviation of suffering in a wise way. Through the purification of the heart, of the mind, that practice affords us. Over time, we learn to do this without getting overwhelmed by suffering, but rather to begin to feel and to know an unobstructed strength of understanding and care and courage, which is what really gives us the necessary and wholesome energy to act when it's appropriate to act. In cultivating the heart of metta and karuna, along with the discipline of developing concentration, mindful awareness, and investigation, a whole realm of new choices, insights, and responses become available to us. We meet and accept what is, which is really the essence of mindfulness based in metta. And then, in whatever ways might be appropriate, we're able to help without any aspect of aversion creating some degree of a barrier. True compassion or boundless compassion, as it's often called, is when we have the capacity to open our heart to the suffering of all beings, our self included, and our mind not make others or ourself more important than each other. Compassion is, it's neither strained nor is it reactive. It flows from the heart with the capacity to transform fear, anger, resentment, disappointment, grief, or expectation, all of which might be present in relationship to another person or certainly in relationship to our own bodily and mental experiences. With the development and the blossoming of compassion, we're cultivating an immeasurable impartiality, which the Tibetan Buddhist teacher Chogyam Krumpa described as a pure and fearless openness without territorial limitation. 
Compassion has the power to melt, to dissolve the separation between self and other. To dissolve this separation in the direct experience of our body, heart, and mind in an open-hearted and yet impersonal, non-identified way. It's our clinging to the idea of self, our deeply habituated thought of a separate, solid, static self that perpetuates this painful separation, or as it's sometimes called, a duality, this duality. Compassion has the power to dissolve or counteract the uneasiness, the discomfort, the contraction, or the withdrawal in the face of others or in the face of our own pain and suffering so that we're really honestly and truly present with them and with ourselves. How different this is than the reactive patterns of anger and fear, resentment, judgment, unhealthy grief or jealousy or greed. I think that most of us usually think of mental states, emotional states, as being positive or negative. As understanding deepens through our practice, we begin to know that really the most important, helpful, and true way of seeing and knowing mental states is the differentiation between reaction and response. Reaction, or we break that word down, reaction, is always based on the past, on past conditioned patterns that are rooted in an agenda. Patterns and and an agenda that are always primarily associated with I, me, and mine. So consequently, they aren't connected to, they really don't see and don't sense the whole reality of our present moment experience. Reaction or reaction always supports and recreates some aspect of our particular karmic predicament. It reifies our habitual thoughts, actions, and self-identification that this is who I am, or this is who you are. On the other hand, compassion is a response. It's not a reaction, not a reaction. It's a response. And if we break that word down, response, responsibility, the ability to respond. There's a story about Zen master Ryokan, whose brother had invited him over to uh, visit his house to speak to his uh, quite delinquent son. So, of course, Ryokan went. Uh, but he actually never said any words of admonishment to the boy, to his nephew. 
he stayed overnight and um, as he prepared to leave uh, early the next morning uh, his wayward son was sitting on a uh, on the ground helping his uncle Ryokan lace up his straw sandals and as he was doing this the boy felt a, some warm water uh, touch his hand and he looked up he glanced up and he saw his uncle Ryokan looking down at him with his eyes filled with tears well Ryokan went home he returned to where he lived and he was told by his brother that uh, very soon after that visit, that the nephew uh, changed considerably for the better. So no words, but lots of compassion that had a profound effect on that boy. Compassion training, the practice and the unfolding of karuna is actually quite challenging, as I'm sure you all know to some degree. It's often quite difficult. It means that we take to heart uh, the Buddha's words, and these are uh, one of his most famous statements. I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And as I think you all know, uh, the Buddha wasn't uh, about to go uh, on and tell us the best way to suffer we're all really quite well practiced in this we know this we don't need any training and he of course either neither was he recommending suffering he was though actually pointing pointing out that the unsatisfactoriness the confusion anguish are all intrinsic to our human condition or more accurately, these states are uh, states of mind and body as well, are intrinsic until we wake up to the true nature of life. What he was doing was pointing out the truth of its existence, the existence of dukkha. And that looking directly, deeply, and honestly at the reality of suffering in our own lives is what leads us to take the necessary steps to free ourselves from it, which in turn leads to a transformation and relinquishment of the mental states that cause us so much anguish. Here in Taos, in the mid to late summer and and often up even into the early fall, we have what uh, is a monsoon season. And during that monsoon season, this monsoon season here, we're over it now, we'll hopefully get a good one coming up, um, we have often appearing huge, in this big open sky here, huge arches of rainbows, and, and very often double arches of rainbows. Rainbows can be really wonderful teachers. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. So there's just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere. The light is just right. And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And what happens? 
all of it changes very, very quickly in just moments. Everything in life, including what we think of as our self, all of our experiences of body and mind really are like a rainbow. Merely a changing set of conditions that are totally interrelated, totally interdependent, totally contingent, and empty in and of themselves. And it's really obvious with rainbows. But not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing phenomena, both mental and physical phenomena, our rainbow body, our rainbow mind. The suffering of grasping on, of trying to hold tight to some appearing thing and then solidifying it and identifying it as mine, as me, as who I think I am, be it material objects or ideas or opinions, beliefs, a memory, an emotional state, a bodily experience, thinking of any of these things as in any way permanent and unchanging, and identifying any of this as me, mine, and I, will inevitably and eventually bring confusion and some degree of anger. Trying to control, trying to cling on or push away or avoid events or moments of this constantly changing life with the nature of it really all being uncontrollable, ungovernable, ungraspable, will inevitably bring suffering. It's our relationship to phenomena that brings suffering. The kind of suffering that the Buddha speaks about being free from. It's our relationship to phenomena that brings this suffering. I found it really quite amazing and illuminating when I began to see that as I practiced, the particular objects that come into awareness, they really don't change very much. Basically, we just keep attending to the same body-mind objects over and over again. It's how we experience them how we see them, how we know them, and our relationship to them that changes. And so we find out something really kind of astonishing and and fortunate, we could say, about suffering itself. That it itself is a conditional, totally contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute It's not a solid absolute. And as our practice takes deeper root and as it begins to mature, we begin to see and know that liberation from suffering isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped or wished for, philosophized about, avoided or ignored. 
That's a lot, because we do all those things. We hope, we pretend, we wish, we philosophize about, we avoid, we ignore. But that won't get us free. <laughs> in, our, in our English language, there's an aphorism that tells us ignorance is bliss. Right? Ignorance is bliss. In the clarity of the Buddhist teaching, ignorance isn't bliss. Ignorance is ignorance. And bliss is bliss. <laughs> it's that simple. With, in fact, ignorance providing the fertile ground for delusion to sprout. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are also only impermanent, conditioned states of suffering. They're not who we are. They're just one of the hues of the ephemeral rainbow. The writer and translator Stephen Mitchell uh, wrote a rendition, his rendition of the Greek myth of Sisyphus, which uh, relates to what we're exploring. I'd like to read it to you. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming above him, always above him, like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. As we begin to see more and more clearly, as we continue to climb the mountain, so to say, of metta and compassion and wisdom, letting the heavy rock of our unskillful, cherished habits and identities roll to the bottom, we're less and less often habitually, blindly, caught and trapped in old patterns of suffering and of a suffering relationship to life. And the capacities of kindness and compassion and mindful awareness and concentration and wisdom really do begin to take root and to grow. And our heart opens and we really are truly beginning to awaken. I received a a letter uh, at some point not too long ago from a very dear friend and she has given me permission to share part of it with you. Just had an insight about compassion recently. You might know my niece has been living with me for the past year. I've had lots of conflicting emotions about this, resenting it, irritated, wanting her to leave, but something holding me back from actually telling her that. I recently realized it's compassion, compassion for a kind of young, wounded soul that I'm following through on, 
Compassion, I think, is bound up with integrity. I realize that if I let all my conflicting feelings and issues take over, I would be compromising my integrity, my understanding and belief about the importance of compassion. Sometimes acting with compassion is hard work because it requires us to let go limiting behaviors. So I'm still feeling some of those things, some of those feelings, but feel very clear about my course of action. And she says, life can be so rich and challenging in all its connections to friends, parents, and children. So where does the heart's capacity for compassion, uh, our inclination to cultivate compassion, where does it come from? Well, similar to metta, the seeds of compassion within us have been planted many, many, many times. Every time we've experienced another being who was willing to be with us when we were in pain, every time we've been cared for, attended to, listened to, or just simply sat with, when we've been sick or hurting physically or when we've been in some emotional pain. Every one of those times a seed of compassion or many seeds of compassion were planted, were sown. We keep the image of a garden here. In any moment of the purity of a compassionate connection, relationship is transformed by cutting through the me-you, subject-object dualism. Karuna is a unifying energy. The giver and the receiver are joined, not separate, in any moment of a pure presence in the light of compassion. And these moments carry and hold a particular energy of the heart, as, we are, as I just said, the energy of compassion. And they plant a seed for this energy in the receiver. And as for most of all of us in this room, or all of us in this room, this happens many, many times throughout our life. And so we have many seeds to cultivate through our practice. And of course, we in turn, each of us, plant many seeds. Every time we remain present with another being who's suffering, who's in pain physically or emotionally, a seed of compassion is planted. And the seed of karuna within our own heart is watered and fertilized and it grows too. And every time we wholesomely respond rather than react, both internally and outwardly, to a difficult or painful set of circumstances, a seed of compassion is planted and the seeds of karuna within our own heart grow. And sometimes the learning curve can be quite steep, very steep. The emotional or physical pain facing us from another or within ourselves asks us to step into what might be unknown territory. 
into an unfettered, compassionate relationship. And this can take us really to the very core of our being, to the very core of our subtle, self-centered agenda, the agenda that props up the veil of subtle or maybe not so subtle separation, duality that we've been living behind maybe forever. These learning curves that come our way every once in a while hold the possibility for us to recognize and to let go of the habitual knots that bind us, which in turn offers us the really truly amazing possibility of an unfettered, compassionate connection with another and with ourself as well. So looking at it this way, the interaction within every relationship has the potential of planting seeds for the arising of a clear and true presence within both beings. The interaction within every relationship has the potential of transmission, as I mentioned in relationship to metta. It's a kind of circular process. We receive the seeds of compassion as a transmission, and we give the transmission to others. And, at the same time, also again to ourselves through acts of compassion. And on it goes. This spiraling transmission of karuna. For me, and I I think for many people, an amazing and inspiring contemporary embodiment and transmitter of compassion has been Mother Teresa. There's a video, some of you may have seen it, a film about her life and her work. And there's a short uh, scene in in this film where she stops by the bed of a man who had just been brought in from the street and who is extremely emaciated and very, very sick. And she gets down very close to him, kneels down next to the pallet on the floor, and looking him directly in his eyes, looking looking at him directly into his eyes, and just then simply lifts her hand and lays her hand over his chest at the heart center. And he looks back very directly at her. And for those few moments of this exchange between them, the appearance of the enormous suffering in his face changes completely into light and love. So a few moments of a, of a gentle and very powerful transmission. With the heart of compassion, there's a great strength and trust in our ability to bear witness and face whatever it is, to be with what is, without wanting to make it disappear, without ignoring it or repressing it or pretending that something else is happening. Aversion to pain, ours or another's, says, I can't stand this. I can't be near it. I can't bear this feeling. 
And it's really important, it's really so important that when this comes up in the mind, when this comes up in the heart, it's important to connect to the aversion itself with mindful awareness that's based in the non-judgmental connection and acceptance of metta. Meeting this reactive state of mind, the reactive pattern that's arising, meeting it with a very open-hearted, caring mindfulness. This is the attention that connects. This is how it is right now. This is fear. This is grief. This is anger. This is judgment. This is what's appearing in this moment. And this is how it is. It's so important to recognize our limits without self-judgment. However they might show up in the process of the cultivation of compassion. Karuna is never developed through force. It's appropriate and quite natural to back off from painful experiences at times in our practice and in our life as a whole. Kindness and gentleness with ourself is a really important and necessary aspect of our practice as Winnie and I have both spoken about a number of times. This is metta and karuna itself, this kindness. I'd like to share um, uh, a piece of writing with you in relationship to what I've been just talking about. It's a piece from a, a book called An Interrupted Life, which is a diary written uh, between uh, 1941 and 1943 by a woman named Eddie Hillisom. And Eddie was a 27-year-old Dutch-Jewish woman who, in the midst of the Second World War, lived in a large house with a, a group of people in Amsterdam. And then, in very bad health, uh, she lived in the Westerbrook concentration camp, and then briefly lived in the Auschwitz concentration camp, where she was exterminated on November 30th, 1943. Amazingly, these years of really great suffering throughout Europe were for Eddie a time of enormous personal growth and, paradoxically enough, a time of personal liberation for her. In the midst of the scenario of extermination that was being played out all over Europe. Eddie actually wrote the counter-scenario, we could say. Her diary is an amazing account of our possibility as human beings in the midst of immense, extreme difficulty. And this is from her diary from this book. I think I'll do it anyway. I'll turn inward for half an hour each morning before work and listen to my inner voice lose myself. You could call it meditation. I'm still a bit wary of that word, but anyway, why not? A quiet half hour within yourself, but it's not so simple, the sort of quiet hour. It has to be learned. Learned, learnt, she said. 
a lot of unimportant inner litter and bits and pieces have to be swept out first. Even a small head can be piled high inside with irrelevant distractions. So let this be the aim of the meditation, to turn one's innermost being into a vast empty plain with none of that treacherous undergrowth to impede the view, so that something of God can enter you, and something of love too. Not the kind of love deluxe that you revel in deliciously for half an hour, taking pride in how sublime you feel, but the love you can apply to small everyday things. At another point, Eddie wrote, mysticism must rest on crystal clear honesty and can only come after things have been stripped down to their naked reality. Eddie, with her clear vision, instinctively knew that she would not return from the concentration camps. And she asked a friend to keep her diaries. She knew that she wanted to leave some trace behind uh, to share uh, the solutions that she found for her own life. So from the very last entry in her diary is this. Ever since last night, I've been lying here trying to assimilate just a little of the terrible suffering that has to be endured all over the world. To accommodate just a little of the great sorrow the coming winter has in store. It could not be done. Today will be a hard day. I shall lie quietly and try to anticipate something of the days that are to come. When I suffer for the vulnerable, is it not for my own vulnerability that I really suffer? And that's the last of her of her diary right there. No, it isn't. There's one more line. Sorry. The very end, the last thing is in her in her diary is we should be willing to act as a balm for all wounds. The survivors from the camp who knew her have confirmed that this woman, this young woman, Eddie, was a luminous and extremely compassion, compassionate personality to the very end. It's important to stay mindful in the moving away from and the coming close to. The opening to and the withdrawal that happens in relationship to the mental and physical and situational pain that's showing up. As it is with any object that we give a heartful mindful attention to in our practice. Our perception of the object will change as we see it more and more clearly. And consequently then, our relationship to the object will also change. And in through this whole process, we need to befriend ourselves. And in this befriending of ourselves, we need to come close and See how it is. See how it really is. 
It might be a very strong and very intense energy. But it's not at all static or solid. Can we come so close with the great intimacy that our practice offers us to see how it really is? Can we come so close, grounded in the heart of connection and acceptance, metta, and with a growing and deepening compassion, and see the various colors of the rainbow of our experience really truly in themselves, and begin to see through these colors, even the strongest of the colors. If a very dear friend of ours comes to us with their troubles, usually we we give them our attention and our care in some way. We don't usually tell them to stop feeling what they're feeling. We don't usually tell them to get away from us in the midst of their suffering. So our practice teaches us how to befriend ourself, which quite naturally leads to the development and the blossoming of a connection with all beings. And we come to know that, really, really, truly know that the pain in our heart or the pain in our back essentially really is not different from the pain in the heart or the back of any being anywhere in the world. I think for most of us, our hand quite naturally and quite spontaneously often reaches out to soothe the ache in a foot. I've seen some of you doing some of this here in the meditation hall. The ache in the foot or the ache in the leg or the ache in the back or the ache in the heart. What is it that sometimes holds us back from spontaneously responding to the suffering of another in this same simple and natural way. I think essentially it's due to a very deeply conditioned and almost visceral clinging to the idea of being a separate self. As long as we're immersed and blindly living in and out of this fixed idea Spontaneous concern for others will primarily be felt for those who fall in the range of who we think is mine. And there may be some degree of indifference and even maybe a somewhat more overt aversion in relationship to the pain of those who are outside of this range of mine. As our heart opens and as our understanding deepens and expands, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and constrictive thoughts of self-centeredness. As our heart opens and understanding grows, connection and empathy blossoms. And our sense of being what's been called a closed cell dissolves. Now, it's not that I or me vanishes into some bottomless hole of nothingness. It's not that at all. 
Instead, we really begin to discover that we're truly and simply a cell that forms part of the, and to quote Stephen Batchelor, interdependent, multicellular organism of existence itself. As wisdom blossoms, our way of being in and with conventional reality transforms. And we come to know experientially, not intellectually, not conceptually, but experientially, that I, the sense of I, only exists in relationship to you. I and me is not eliminated. Me is transformed. There's only relationship. Really, there is only relationship. I, me, you, them, us, etc. will never and have never existed in isolation. Have never and will never exist in any solid, static, separate way. The notions of me and you, that seemingly fixed conceptual distinction of me and you, begin to dissolve with the blossoming of the unconditional acceptance of metta and the heart of compassion, karuna. And in relationship to the way that we go about our life, how we relate in this life, changes. Spontaneous, empathetic response begins to emerge really quite naturally and more and more often. And we begin to understand in ourselves, so to say, that the needs of I and me are no more important than those of you. This is really the birth of unconditional kindness and compassion. And again, as Winnie and I have both said a number of times, it's not so easy. This relating to others and ourself with the clarity of a pure heart of metta and a pure compassionate heart. As we have many new and, or many old and seemingly new, uh, personal agendas. We have many deeply conditioned, habituated patterns. I think that for many people there's some confusion in relationship to the difference between pity and what can be uh, described as unhealthy grief. And, and compassion. Both of these energies, pity and grief, are what are called the near enemy, <clears throat> or what looks like or what masquerades as compassion. Pity actually touches pain with fear instead of mercy, instead of a true open-hearted caring presence. Pity is actually a subtle form of aversion. It manifests as a slight contraction, or maybe not so slight, contraction away from 
a withdrawal, if we look at it really carefully. When we pity, there's a subtle or not so subtle wanting it to be different. And also maybe sometimes some feeling that I'm glad it's not me that's suffering so much. So a kind of tinge of a flavor of arrogance that's a cover-up for our fear and our inability at that particular moment to be with the suffering that we're encountering. The energy of unhealthy or the unwholesome component, we could say, of grief is fraught with self-centeredness. That unhealthy component of grief is a very self-obsessed energy. And it can lead one into depression if it goes unrecognized. One can get caught and get lost in that downward spiral of this very strong and deep contraction, which, if we see it clearly, we can find that it's kind of a fixation on the idea of a separate, solid me and you, or me and other, whoever that other is, that you is. And this fixation can often be a strong component in the midst of an unhealthy, unrecognized, unhealthy grief. And when we feel pity for ourselves, in ourself for ourselves, or when we'll ca- when we're caught in that self-obsessed uh, aspect of unhealthy grief, in those moments actually we're not experiencing any real true caring or kindness or compassion for ourselves, but rather we're caught in a kind of sticky, sinking feeling. And we've all felt that at times, I'm sure that sort of heavy ache of feeling sorry for ourselves, that kind of poor me with the capital M-E feeling. And in this place, there's really not much, if any, capacity to act towards taking care of ourselves in a wiser, healthy way. So again, within the natural spaciousness of a non-judgmental mindful awareness rooted in metta, can we practice acknowledging and coming close to our experiences of body and mind, letting go of relating to experience through the veil of concept, through the veil of identification, for instance, myself as a pitiable or myself as a pitiful person, but rather another possibility. Here's pity. Here's grief. This is what's arising. It's not me. It's not mine. It's not who I am, but it's come up. So how is it? How is it? What's it like? Metta, mindfulness, and compassion are necessary companions on the path to awakening. And in the seeming magic that can happen when they work together. 
And we might be surprised at any moment by the arising of compassion in what might feel like a most unlikely circumstance. Compassion arising in an unexpected moment and in a most unexpected way. And I'd like to share a piece from my own diary that comes from my participation in the first uh, Bearing Witness retreat that Roshi Bernie Glassman held in uh, Poland in November of 1996 at the Auschwitz concentration camp. I was teaching in Poland at that time. and It'll be explained through the diary uh, offering. It's well into the second month of offering the Buddha Dhamma here in Poland. Tomorrow begins a few days away from my teaching duties. I'll take a train and go to the remains of the concentration camp at Auschwitz. It's American Thanksgiving, but Bernie, uh, Bernie Glassman Roshi has organized the first Bearing Witness Retreat. As we slowly walk through the camp on this first harsh, gray November morning, I'm aware of two distinct qualities of energy that seem to permeate the atmosphere, the land, the buildings, imbuing every aspect of Auschwitz that we come into contact with. The first of these is an enormous depth of sadness, an incredible heaviness and heartache that's palpable. It's everywhere, in and emanating from everything. It brings tears from the eyes of many of the 140 people attending this retreat. The stacked bunks and open sewer living spaces of the so-called prisoners. The shocking photos of children and displays of their shoes, clothes, and toys touch my heart to a depth almost too much to hold. The other quality of energy is amorphous, yet also palpable. It's in the atmosphere and at moments in my body and heart. It manifests like waves of razor-sharp edginess and tension, moments of touching what feels like insanity. This is even harder to let fully in than the immense sadness, as it's a far less familiar feeling and thus less comfortable. There's a sense of not wanting to get too close to whatever this is. The sorrow and heartache are immediately understandable to me, but I'm not so easily comprehending the almost atmospheric, terrifying tension, the raw discordance and alienation, until one afternoon when I find myself alone on my knees in front of an oven where the bodies of those murdered by the Nazis were burned. Tears stream from my eyes. In Om Mani Padme Hum, the Tibetan mantra of compassion, which translates as the jewel in the heart of the lotus, spontaneously repeats out loud from my heart over and over and over again for the Nazis. A deep intuitive understanding of utter insanity and the untenable suffering therein is fathomed. The depth of disconnection, separation from life, from oneself, the unmitigated alienation that one would have to be living in, living with, in order to murder one, let alone millions, is recognized. And my heart cracked open with this recognition. In the midst of this unforeseen insight, my whole being is flooded with unconditional compassion for the actions of the Nazis. 
not for the, excuse me, not for the actions of the Nazis, but for the actors. Since that Thanksgiving retreat, I've been deeply aware that just as each of us has the capacity to help others from the heart of compassion, every one of us also knows at least moments of disconnection, separation from life, from ourselves, and the unmitigated alienation and utter insanity, untenable suffering therein. I know now so much more clearly that if one identifies with this experience as I, me, mine, and mires into this self-identification, this place of great existential suffering, it can lead to outward actions that in turn cause suffering for others, as happened to such an extreme, extreme degree in Auschwitz. Since the days at Auschwitz, I'm feeling enormous gratitude that somehow all the opportunities and blessings have been in place for me to connect with these teachings and practices, which are the best medicine for all wounds. And a couple of years after I returned from Poland and from this uh, experience in Auschwitz, the story that I just read from my diary was put into a newsletter um, that the Taos Meditation Group sent out. Uh, And I'd like to uh, share a response that I received from one of my Israeli students um, uh, in response. She was sent... uh, sent this newsletter and she read that and this is her response and she's a she's a very close uh, student Dhamma student of mine and she's also been involved over the years uh, in a lot of uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace work peace initiative work and this is what she wrote me thank you for the newsletter you sent me I would like to ask your permission to translate your article about compassion to Hebrew for the Sangha here. We seem to need to be reminded of this quality, especially now when we're facing such difficult times. I was deeply touched reading in your diary about the compassion you expressed for the Nazis. It was very hard for me to understand. From my early childhood, I saw the horror and the pain on the faces of the people who survived and were the parents or grandparents of friends of mine. They and other people told us every year stories from what they have experienced. I felt as if they wanted us to carry the horror with us forever. I remember once I took a night train from Copenhagen to Amsterdam and was not aware of the fact that the train had to go through Germany. I went to sleep and was awakened when the train stopped at the border and a German policeman came and asked for my passport. I was never so terrified. I felt all the blood in my veins froze. After a while, I went to sleep again and had a dream. In my dream, the train had to stop, and the policeman asked everybody to step down from the train. I refused, saying again and again that I'm not allowed to tread on German soil. Finally, I took some books that were in my bag and put them on the ground and very carefully made my way. Then I woke up. I think only then I realized how deeply I was influenced by the stories I'd heard as a child. I cannot even bear the thought of going to Poland. I'm too frightened to even think about it. From this state of mind, I tried to connect what you experienced. I felt as if it's very important for me to be, a- to be able to make such a transition. 
A few days later, I watched on TV a regular video that Hamas is broadcasting after each terrorist act. A young man with guns in both of his hands, a flag, and the Book of Quran explained that he's ready to give up his life and kill as many Israelis as possible. His eyes were empty. Life, his, others, any life, has no meaning for him. I began to cry. And then I thought, maybe this was the unconditional compassion you were expressing. I could connect to this now. It's hard for us to understand here how uh, deep that is for people in that part of the world. It was amazing that she wrote that and felt that. And uh, some words from uh, a woman no longer alive, Vimala Thakkar, who was a great Indian spiritual master. Uh, she was a long time and very close student of Krishnamurti's. And she's been described uh, as embodying the essence of enlightened consciousness and social responsibility. And these are uh, from, this is, these words are hers. We're at odds with ourselves internally. We believe that the inner is fundamentally different from the outer, that what is me is quite separate from the not me, that division among people and nations are necessary, and yet we wonder why there are tensions, conflicts, wars in the world. The conflicts begin with minds that believe in fragmentation and are ignorant of wholeness. When we, come to face, when we come face to face with the actualities of human and planetary suffering, what does this powerful moment of truth do to us? Do we retreat, retreat into the comforts of theories and defense mechanisms? Or are we awakened at the core of our being? She has a lot more to say about it, but that's And so these two wings of awakening with which we fly free. The wing of wisdom that comes about through our experiential insight into the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and the not-self nature of all conditioned things. And the other wing, the other wing being unconditional, boundless compassion. Our heartfelt connection to beings and our way of being in the world that ensues from this heartfelt connection. In reflecting on the lineage of these amazing teachings that we've inherited down through the centuries from our teachers and their teachers and and their teachers' teachers, all the way back to the Buddha, this heartfelt wisdom lineage of the extended Dhamma family. If it wasn't for the wing of the Buddha's great compassion, we wouldn't have these teachings available to us today. I I really find it very interesting uh, and helpful and quite inspiring to read the Buddha's words about himself when he actually wrote about his own experience in his speaking about his own humanness. 
which he actually even spoke about in relationship to his process of awakening. And here's a little bit of that. In one of his discourses, we find him with uh, a small group of monks, bhikkhus, uh, sharing with them what his thoughts were very soon after his awakening. And this is what he says. This dhamma that I've attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle, to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It's hard for such a generation to see this truth. If I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me and would be weary, it would be wearying and troublesome for me. Enough with teaching the Dhamma that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Those died in lust, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse Dhamma, which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. And the Buddha goes on to say, Considering thus, my mind inclined to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. And then uh, he tells his monks that soon after all of this, all this thinking, uh, a certain Brahmin, he might have he said it out loud as well to his, uh, his group of uh, friends, monks, a certain Brahmin came to him and, and pleaded, and this is what the Brahmin said, the world will be lost, the world will perish, since the mind of the Tathagata, which is a term that was used for the enlightened one, since the mind of the Tathagata accomplished and fully enlightened, inclines to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One teach the Dhamma. Let the Sublime One teach the Dhamma. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand the Dhamma. And then the Buddha goes on, telling his monks, Then I listened to the Brahmins pleading. And out of compassion for beings, I surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. Surveying such, I saw beings with little dust in their eyes and with much dust in their eyes, with keen faculties and with dull faculties, with good and bad qualities. I saw beings easy to teach and hard to teach. And then I replied to the Brahma, Out of compassion for beings, open for them are the doors to the deathless. Let those with ears show their faith. Thinking it would be troublesome, O Brahman, I did not speak the Dhamma subtle and sublime. So he changed his mind. Thank God. <laughs> Lucky for us. <laughs> so this wing of unconditional compassion, profound, subtle, and in itself, obviously, also not so easy to reach in its fullness and purity. Karuna so honestly and clearly spoken about in the Buddha's description of his own awakening. It's the wing that connects the absolute understanding of not-self to the relative nature of our humanness. And I'd like to uh, close the talk this evening with uh, something from one of my students from here in Taos who uh, died a number of years ago of AIDS-related complications. 
He was a writer. He never finished his book, but this is a a, a piece of, of, from his unfinished book. My first eight day vipassana retreat. Trepidation and desire flood my soul in equal measure. Will I encounter deeply buried demons from my past? Will emotions overwhelm me? Will I be able to stop crying? In the days leading up to the retreat, it's as if my body's attempting to erode the quiet resolve of my mind to go. Pain gathers in my back, making my daily sit uncomfortable. Unaccountably, my gums start to throb and bleed. My left leg grows numb. On the day that I make the two-hour drive to the retreat center, a splitting headache rips through my brain, bringing me to tears. I don't care what you do, I say out loud to my body. I'm going to that retreat. He was like that. He was an amazing guy. (laughs) The retreat schedule looks daunting. From 5.45 a.m. till 10 p.m., nine sits alternating with eight walks for six days. Two half days are also full. Meals are deliciously vegetarian. The air is abuzz with insects feasting on the nectar of the hundreds of flowers around the center. Before we take up our vows of silence, I tell one of the two teachers that I may need to nap during the day, and I'm reassured by the gentle understanding I receive. Participate when you can. Rest when you need to. By our first sit, all my bodily pain is gone. Blessed silence and avoiding eye contact with others enables me to develop a cocoon of self. By the second full day, I marvel that I'm attending all of the sessions without the need for naps. I begin to feel energized and even find time to incorporate the Hatha Yoga series I learned years ago into the schedule. I sense new levels of awareness about the nature of this practice, about the Buddha's compassion. During one Dhamma talk, we're asked to Consider what a nightmare life would be if there were no change. By the fourth day, questions during Dhamma talks increase in intensity. Are metta and karuna better than vipassana? Have any of you thought that? <laughs> in, is practice, in practice, is holding on to the breath different from holding a thought? If we can observe our thoughts rising and falling, where do they come from? Where do they go? We're creating an energy of trust. My heart opens to all retreatants struggling their own struggles. Who am I to judge anyone? They are me. The rhythm of the retreat mimics the rhythm of our breath and the rhythm of nature. All around us, cycles come and go, repeat and fall away. AIDS is a cycle. It's not my condition but the human condition. It's the great gift that has taught me about impermanence. I realize how vipassana-like AIDS has been in my life, always bringing me back to the now, always reminding me to be present. And vipassana, vipassana practice is a cycle. It's in my life and out. It touches everything I do and is nowhere. The last full day of the retreat, during walking meditation, I was overwhelmed with sadness for all humanity and for the planet. I cried and cried in pain. How can there ever be an end to suffering? And then I stopped and looked up at the hill behind the meditation center, my heart as though leaping open for a moment into the beauty of this life, the suffering and the beauty, all of it being held, but not held onto.
and let's sit for just a moment.